Seven, six, five, four, three, two, one. You'll never have the sacred stone. <laughs> oh, this you crazy mother. Welcome to the Dead Pundits Society. Hello, everybody. It's me, Adam. Remember me? Yeah, it's been a while. Back from yet another unplanned hiatus. This is a patron-only episode of DPS. For those of you who are not patrons, you will get a little teaser. You'll be able to whet your whistle, if you will, with some good, insightful commentary from Matt Carp about the history of what falls under the sign of identity politics. That's coming up real soon. If you want to hear the entire episode, you'll have to become a patron. I have been putting in 12 to 16 hour days to build, you know, uh, a, a career for myself in which I can feed and clothe myself regularly. So apologies for not being as present on the podcast over the past few months. I have gone all in on DPS over the past few years and, you know, I got to be honest, it has taken a tremendous toll on my personal life and on my financial prospects. And, you know, three to six months ago, I decided I wasn't going to do that anymore. I have no desire to become a big lefty media star. I have no desire to make a million bucks doing this or even to make like, you know, I don't know, like 30,000 bucks doing this. And so I've had to face the music and go get a job <laughs> because... You know, uh, having health insurance and being able to feed and clothe and house yourself is really important. So apologies for the long hiatus, particularly to my patrons who fund this enterprise. I will take your money. I need it desperately to keep this project going, but it's just not enough, nor is it ever going to be enough for me to survive on. That being said, coming episodes are going to be patron only because I want to make sure that the people who are putting their money where their mouth is here, the people who are providing for the future of the show, I want to be sure that those people are being you know, rewarded for it, that it's worth their while. You know, I've, I've, I've avoided that for a long time, but I think it just makes sense, and that's what we're doing going forward. So if you want to hear the entirety of this episode as well as all of the others, become a patron today at www.patreon.com slash deadpundits. I've been thinking about many other things over the past couple of months. I've been sort of harping about some of those things on Twitter. I don't spend really any time on Twitter anymore, but I have given a little, a few clues to what my thought process has been over the past few months. And to be honest with you, I'm just trying to move away from this version of politics that is, to be quite frank, seemingly divorced from all other facets and aspects of life. You know, I was reflecting on Twitter a few weeks ago about how the last real serious meaningful conversation I had with Michael Brooks before his untimely death. He passed away last August. Jesus, we're coming up on a year there. And my my last meaningful like real conversation with him was probably in May. It was around the time when the pandemic had hit and it was kind of looking likely that like man, this is what we're going to be doing for a while. This is not going to pass, you know, quickly. And he and I had an extended text conversation as we would do from time to time. And, you know, he was kind of cracking jokes about how, you know, he was just going to go like all Deepak Chopra self-help guru here in a bit because we were both basically complaining about how we were really getting sick of this kind of, you know, political guru, punditry kind of nonsense that we're both like swimming in as podcast hosts. And I was kind of joking with him, you know, for the whole Deepak Chopra kind of thing. But at the same time, I was like, you know what, dude, like do it. And I'm, I'm into that, right? Like people just sometimes want 
to be told like how to live their life, how to better their lives, how to better themselves. And unfortunately, there's really nobody else on the left who's doing that in any serious way. You know, you know, some of y'all might think that I'm joking right now. Some of you might be waiting for the punchline. Like, oh, Adam, he's like, he's, 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 he's like, you know, making a joke about this like neoliberal, like self-help industry, right? Right. The punchline is going to drop soon. No, like I'm deadly fucking serious. You know, I had this talk with Michael Brooks, you know, uh, the last serious talk I had with him before he passed and, and, you know, returning back to that and thinking over, you know, that idea is just really interesting and insightful to me because we have created this version of politics that is really abstract and removed from people's like day-to-day lives. You know, I mean, I mean, in order to do it, you have to go in a room full of other weirdos just like you who obsess about this stuff in order to talk about it, right? Like we dare not speak about most of these things with our families, with our coworkers, or even with our friends because it just doesn't make sense. It's not relevant to them. And that's not to say that we don't need a specialized sector or an enterprise for training cadres. We absolutely do. I believe in that today as much as I ever have, but we need to integrate that more with people's real lives, people's real troubles, people's real concerns. You know, what's that C. Wright Mills quote? Something about politics is, Jesus, it's going to escape me. You are probably shouting into your smartphones at me. Politics is something about like when, you know, personal troubles transcend that realm and become collective social problems, right? And, and in order to do real politics, you have to tap into people's real lived experience in the world, not in this kind of abstract academic political realm that we have like artificially created by the extant left. You know, I myself being a big part of that. Anyway, you know, I could, I could talk about this for an entire episode all by myself. I haven't really thought it over enough for that. I'm not saying that that won't happen in the near future. Um, I am already thinking very seriously about how to do episodes that while I'm keeping kind of the DPS, you know, the DPS brand intact, the brand meaning like, you know, good, solid, serious socialism for regular ass people. Highly, you know, not being afraid of being intensely theoretical at times, uh, but also very grounded and pragmatic and strategic, right? I take that to be the DPS brand, something that I've really tried to build, right? This project over the past four years. But how can I take that brand, but then also integrate like more kind of everyday topics about, fuck it, I don't know, family, dating, you know, the jobs, uh, the difficulties of navigating like multiple roles in our lives. It is so fucking common to be a socialist in today's society. It is remarkably common uh, for me to run into people you know, uh, between the ages of like, you know, whatever, you know, uh, 20 and 35 to 40, who just openly identify as uh, some kind of socialist and in a sort of knee jerk, everyday, obvious sort of way. Like, well, obviously I'm a socialist. That doesn't mean they're like, you know, schooled up on the history of the Russian Revolution or even know that DSA exists, but they're just like, well, yeah, fuck yeah, I'm, I'm for that. You know, Bernie and AOC and you know, and Black Lives Matter, you know, obviously I think Black Lives Matter and fuck the Trumpsters and the right wingers are full of shit and fuck Jeff Bezos. Like, yeah, I'm a socialist. Like, obviously, what else would I be? And the extant left is just not reaching these people because those people rightfully so are not interested in this sort of like left that we have created and cultivated over the past, God, I don't even 50 years that sort of is produced in a vacuum 
you know, apart from people's real lives where you have to sort of leave your life and go to a meeting in order to engage in it. And then when you leave the meeting, in some senses, you're kind of like losing that part of yourself while you engage with yourself, you know, your family at work and even sometimes your friends, you know, you're like, oh, I've got my political friends and I've got my non-political friends. Like, what could that possibly mean aside from the fact that like, you know, your political friends are versed in this code, right? This code of what is, quote, left, whereas your non-political friends are not versed in the code, in the language. I think that's sort of, it's out of touch. It's out of date. It's not in tune with the society that we're living in. We're just like regular fucking people just openly and obviously identify as socialists. They're like, we live on a fucking burning planet and imperialism sucks and war is terrible. We've all lived with the ravages of this. And, you know, like the, the fire sector, you know, finance and real estate insurance. These, these guys are, are vampire squids, you know, sucking the blood from humanity. And I just want to live in a world that's cooperative and democratic and peaceful. No, we're, we're not reaching these people. And I'm not suggesting that, like, you know, one day they're going to wake up and just all want to listen to DPS. I'm not going to change the world. It's just that I am thoroughly uninterested in engaging in this delusion that I myself have been a part of for the past several years. And I'm not saying that it wasn't necessary, and I'm not saying that it wasn't important. But what I am saying is we need to be malleable, and we need to shift and change course with the shifts that are happening in broader society at large. And the reality is that there are millions of people who just identify with socialism in a very knee-jerk sort of way, but that doesn't mean that they're interested in, like, dusty study rooms and or study groups and, you know, like, small, relatively small, you know, like, well-acculturated, you know, individuals that speak the right code, you know, about specific topics that nobody knows anything about or really cares about. So the question is, the challenge is that, you know, that I talked about with Michael in that conversation almost a year ago, you know, the challenge is to how to make this stuff relevant while we engage in the material that people care about most. Again, dating, self-confidence, right? Their, their relationship to themselves, their relationship to others, their relationship to the world and their relationship to their pr- production. And for those of you who didn't get the nod there, that is from None other than Karl Marx's Philosophic and Economic Manuscripts of 1844. I got that backwards, didn't I? It's the Economic and Philosophical Manuscripts of 1844. But he didn't name it anyway. It's just a fucking collection that was put together in an ad hoc way. That's the basis of alienation. Now, lest you, th- lest you think that, oh, Adam's gone off the fucking deep end. He, he's disappeared from the airwaves for the past few months, and he's lost the faith, and now he's into this woo-woo neoliberal self-help crap. Bullshit bullshit I am because what I've been talking about is none other than sort of outlining Marxist theory of, of alienation in capitalist society we're alienated from our uh, the, the fruits of our labor now that's the one that socialists obsess about and for good reason because that's the political economic basis of our understanding of capitalism right and how to how to how to do better how to you know develop a socialist society but that's not the only one. We're not only talking about, you know, our relationship to the fruits of our labor because there are correlates there, very crucial and necessary correlates, which ground the primacy of political economy in my perspective, right? The reason why we say class is primary is because class is tied to political economy. 
The reason why we say political economy is primary is because political economy grounds the other kinds of alienation and relationships that exist in society. So our political economy, right, will determine, will overdetermine our relationship with ourself and our relationship with other. As, as Marx says in his somewhat uh, anachronistic, you know, language, uh, relationship of man with self and man with other man, right? Human with human, human with self. So why is it that we are completely, completely ignoring self-alienation, alienation of person uh, from other persons? And it's not hard to see, you know, from, from looking at that, that lacuna, right? That massive gap, those gaps that, that, that we have allowed to fester on the left. It's no, it's no wonder that we are so inhumane with one another, that we reproduce these forms of alienation inside of our organizations, inside of the left media ecosystem, where we just shit talk each other and treat each other like garbage, where we go on Twitter and we just take all of this internalized self-hatred and self-alienation and, and unleash it into others in the world for no good fucking reason. You know, and, and it's just it's just, it's just all kind of coming so crystal clear to me over the past few months. I've had to reflect on, you know, the, the kind of the ebbing and flowing of the Bernie wave, the way that it's sort of transmogrified in the, in the Biden administration, right? I've had to look at losing two of my greatest mentors and confidants when it comes to this political stuff. And um, I just want to move forward in a way that just doesn't, give in to this idea that politics is some kind of like stale, abstract, separate realm of life that is totally divorced from, from everything else in our lives that we give a shit about. And I'm really, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm happy to see, you know, Jacobin, I think from what I've seen, Jacobin now has like a sports show, which is great. You know, we should talk about sports and politics. We always talk about like, you know, socialists need to have their own form of culture and Dan Bessner has come on the show multiple times. He's written about this and done a lot of research on Weimar uh, Germany, you know, with the Second International and the, uh, the SPD, Day, talking about, you know, like how they created their own forms of like working class and socialist culture. But I think there's a way in which we can do that. And I'm sorry, this is really off the cuff. I did not plan on talking about this stuff at all. Um, so deal, you know, come on, be nice here, guys. Be, be, let's deal with me with kid gloves here. These are not like prepared remarks. I'm thinking out loud. But my concern about, you know, what we've, what we've tried to do with, with, quote, socialist and working class culture, both inside DSA and outside DSA and, and elsewhere, right? Maybe even like in Momentum in the UK and elsewhere. I'd love to hear comrades talk to me about this, you know, from, from the UK, if it resonates um, and what they think. But it seems to me that we have been trying to form almost a kind of um, insurrectionist model of socialist culture. And that's been our failure. What do I mean by that? When we talk about creating a distinctive working class and socialist uh, culture, we talk about building a, a sort of counter culture, right? <laughs> Clearly not my word, a counter culture. And we all know where that led to coming out of the 60s. If you've done your homework about the new, the spirit, the new spirit of capitalism and all the rest of it. You know, we're talking about, you know, in, in, in our own way. And I mean, like with the socialist media ecosystem, we've been doing this. With Jacobin and Jacobin reading groups, we've been doing this. With DSA, in, in many ways, we've been doing this. Where we're trying to build this sort of parallel version, this parallel model of socialist culture that is distinctive. It deals with, it has distinctive subject matter. 
distinctive codes, all of the things that anthropologists talk about when they, when they talk about culture in a general way. It has its distinctive language, its distinctive jokes, clicks, you know, faux pas, um, ways of speaking, ways of associating, you know, signaling to others that you are in a various in-group or, 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 you know, that they belong in an out-group. Outgroup co or in-group cohesion is spawned by out-group aggression. All of these like, like you know, anthropological kind of theories and models and the rest of it, and sociological theories and models that that sort of encompass culture. That we are doing this in a kind of um, a separatist way, and I say it's insurrectionist because it's insurrectionist in the sense that you know the kind of um, insurrectionist model of you know quote Leninism takes in building parallel institutions and parallel structures to to sort of force a dual power situation that will then sort of come to a halt. There will be a sort of a revolution, right? All of these uh, things that, you know, my, my fallen uh, deceased comrade Ed Rooksby used to talk about so persuasively when he'd come on this show and give a very, very serious critique of dual power and Leninism and, quote, revolutionary socialism. We've been doing that with culture, you know, and I had to have a serious look in the mirror. You know, a serious look in the mirror to think to myself, my God, like I've been, I've been, I've been, you know, uh, going hard against, you know, quote, revolutionary socialism, this kind of quote, dual power, uh, you know, messianic kind of insurrectionist approach to politics, right? That has largely, I think, been squashed, um, at least in the U.S., with the success of the Bernie wave and DSA and some other movements that have a much more, I think, nuanced and careful way of talking about um, serious and revolutionary social, political, and economic change. And yet, right, I've been, I've been going hard on those, on those things for, for years. And yet, I have been, Jesus, guys, I'm, I didn't expect to talk like this. This is really, this feels good, though, to me. It feels good to me. I hope it feels good to you. And yet, I have been reproducing the same kind of insurrectionist, separatist, kind of dual power model of socialist culture on this podcast, right? Implicitly so. Because when we talk about politics in a way that is completely divorced from the, the rest of the shit that we do throughout the day, what else could we be doing but trying to like stage a separate but alternative way of like producing a culture in groups and, you know, all of the codes and signals and and ideals and institutions and stuff like that that goes along with with what we what passes for culture. Maybe that's not the way to do it. Maybe there's another way, right? Maybe there's a way that we instead of trying to you know develop uh, you know a, a separatist institutions from the outset like the revolutionary socialist model does, the dual power model does. Maybe we transform the existing mores, you know. Uh, cultural institutions, forms, signs, signals, all the rest of it. Maybe we go in and through the existing culture to transform it that way, which means intensely relating to people's real needs, people's real concerns, the things that people really grapple with. Why the fuck isn't there like 30 podcasts that talk about, you know, like the, 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 the personal struggles of like teenagers and 20-somethings from a socialist perspective. And I don't mean giving dating advice as a way to shove socialist history down somebody's throat. I mean giving real fucking dating advice. 
but dating advice that's informed by an analysis and a critique of systemic issues that cause those problems in the first place. I mean, this is just totally off the cuff. I'm just pulling this one out of my ass because I'm thinking about the kind of like, you know, the Ben Shapiro, Peterson kind of milieu. And they really, they really emphasize these kinds of things, you know, and self-help and self-confidence and dating and love life and, and, and self-betterment. And, they, you know, why do they have a monopoly on this shit? They don't have a systemic critique like we do. They don't have a critique of alienation in society. They don't have a critique of the capitalist mode of production. They don't have a critique of the way that capitalism, you know, divides people and, and forces us to live these private lives, you know, div- you know, d- apart from one another in society and the way that we're, you know, made to compete with each other and, and, and what that does to you mentally and psychologically and emotionally. They don't have any of that shit. So why are they ruling the airwaves? Why is it that if you look at the, the top shared post on Facebook on a weekly basis, Ben Shapiro occupies like seven of those top 10 most shared posts on Facebook, right? Because forget about Twitter, real America, i.e. numerically America, right? They live on Facebook, right? Facebook is sort of like a, a populist, every, every person uh, platform right now. And why is it that we are ceding that territory to Ben Shapiro and, and uh, you know, well, formerly Peterson? He's kind of off the radar screen now a little bit. But I'm loving to see this uh, surge of socialist activity um, coming on TikTok because I'm on TikTok for my business right? because I'm a photographer. And, um, and it has a way of sort of pushing, you know, certain topics in the algorithms to your for you page. If you guys don't know TikTok, whatever, you guys can clown me if you want to. It's fine. I don't give a fuck. I'm tired of apologizing for liking things that everybody else in the world likes. Who cares if I'm a leftist and a Marxist? I'm allowed to like things that everybody likes and you should too. (laughs) But anyway, if you go on TikTok, it is astonishing how people are using that platform to dismantle the Israeli settler state's talking points right they're dismantling it and they're they're winning the war of palestinian justice on tiktok which is remarkable because i was a palestinian rights activist for for a decade i've got my name on multiple blacklists you know i've been nearly arrested i've been in physical altercations i've gone to protests and sit-ins and direct actions i've formed you know i've i've, I've uh, formed a student and community groups around the issue and, and I think we made a lot of progress, but it really fell stagnant there for a while. And all of a sudden now, in large part because of the, you know, the heroism of the Palestinian people, like let's not, let's, let's not, uh, you know, make the mistake of, of, of not putting that front and center. Of course, it's the heroism of Palestinian people. But what's really making the impact worldwide in, in the United States about shifting opinion is that people are going ham on the, on the TikTok platform and reaching people with this obvious injustice. These, these, you know, these teens, 20s, 30s, 40s, boomers, whatever, who are clued in to injustice, you know, uh, because of the Trump era, because of the Black Lives Matter era, because of the Bernie Sanders wave, because of the, you know, foreclosure crisis and all these, other, you know, the immigration crisis. They're clued into oppression and injustice. And when they see what's happening to the Palestinian people on TikTok, they're like, my God, this is fucking horrible. This can't stand. And, and, and the, the, you know, the, the public uh, opinion, the public attitude about this has shifted drastically because of that. You know, I, I made a post on Twitter just the other day, my first in a long time, and I said, my God, maybe the wokes, the, the quote wokes, right, the people who were like Bernie Sanders skeptical in 2016, you know, but they came around to Bernie or Warren or whatever in 2020, 
maybe the wokes, you know, are going to to be like the decisive blow to Israeli apartheid, you know, because they're really getting on board with this stuff in a big way. And to their credit, they're developing and they're learning and they're growing in a, in a path of like more, you know, rationally and systemic, systemically like uh, aligned socialist principles. Good on them. So I'm just, you know, I don't know. Uh, this has gone almost 25 minutes. You know, look, I suspect many people who didn't want to hear this have probably fast-forwarded to the Matt Carp interview. <laughs> if you haven't, look, you could have, right? I'm tired. I, like, I always, I'm overly apologetic because I'm like a working-class kid with imposter syndrome, and I'm like, you know, I don't, uh, I wasn't taught that, you know, everything I say matters all the time, and so I'm constantly apologizing for things that I do and say, and it's fucking obnoxious that I do it, and I should stop. But uh, I'm tired of apologizing for talking too much on my own fucking podcast. If you guys don't like it, you can listen to something else or you can fast forward to the interview. (laughs) So we're 25 minutes in. Let's go ahead and cut it off there. I had planned to do about a four-minute intro, but here we are, and I'm really happy that I got a lot of those thoughts out. You guys can tell that I've really been grappling with this stuff over the past several months. I'm just not interested in doing it. It bores me, you guys. I'm not saying I'm not going to bring on authors anymore. I'm not saying I'm not going to talk about, uh, you know, like heady, academic, dusty, dusty issues. Of course I am. But I am only interested in doing that in the context of things that are really important and that matter in people's day-to-day lives. I mean, isn't, if, if that's not socialism for regular-ass people, I don't know what is. I haven't changed my ideals and principles. I'm just, tr- I'm just trying to tweak things in order to more closely approximate that reality of socialism for regular-ass people, about what that really does mean. So, you know, you're not getting in. This is not a come to Jesus moment. I've not changed my politics. I've not changed my principles. DPS is going to be the same in many, many ways. But I think some will like it and some won't going forward. I think many will because I'm not getting this anywhere else, to be honest with you, in a lot of other political podcast shows. I love what Nando is doing over there on um, the the Jacobin podcast. I love what uh, Paul and his, Jesus, I'm sorry, the, the his um his um, co-hosts, their names are escaping me because I'm not as close with them personally. But I love what Paul is doing over there on the Jacobin show with his amazing co-hosts. Um, but but like a lot of this other stuff is just kind of, uh, it's just very cliche, niche, left stuff that's divorced from reality. We got to stop. So enough out of me. Everybody, please enjoy this interview that I did with Matt Carp about an, uh, an essay that was, <laughs> I did this interview in February you guys. So have patience with this one. Everything he said is timeless. There, you know, we may talk about some issues that are passe or past or gone and behind us, but, um, but the, the, the real meat and potatoes of this interview are, are historically grounded, like in the Gilded Age of like, you know, the late 19th century. So that stuff is absolutely relevant. I know you're going to enjoy it. Upon re-listening to it, I was like, damn, this interview was even better than I remembered. Matt Cart brings the fire and produces some really thoughtful insights about our current moment. And really kind of revises our understanding, I think, of what falls under the sign as identity politics. So, had fun with this one. You guys enjoy it. Thanks, patrons. Um, to the rest of you, if you would like to hear the, the entirety of this episode, you're going to have to go to www.patreon.com slash and become a subscriber today. The link is in the show notes. You know what to do. Please enjoy. Hello, everybody, and welcome to today's episode of Dead Punnett Society. I am your host, as always, Adam Proctor, and joining me on the microphone today is a very familiar voice to nearly all of you. He's been on the show a couple of times. He is a prolific writer. He has time uh, to 
be a tenured professor in the Ivy League, uh, pump out several articles for Jacobin each month, and uh, you know, raise a kid to boot. Uh, Matt Carp, how you doing, my friend? Hey, pretty good, pretty good. I'm, you know, I'm doing all three things a little worse than I uh, used to do two things, and then you you add more things, and you do each thing a little bit worse. But you know, that's how that's life, I guess. Well, you're riding the tenure track now, so you can just kind of cruise to retirement. Is that right? Is is that the case? The struggle of life is basically over at, at 38. Like it's true, being a being a being a tenured professor, it's like you know retiring from professional sports. It's like you're you're 40 and you're just you know your life is is basically over. You know, That's there's no, there's no real existential struggle ahead of you. You yeah. know, you gotta make one up. It's, I mean, and then that leads to like the departmental politics and the toxicity that festers in some ranks of academia. Yeah, anyway, we're not going to go there. But uh, how's 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 the Zoom class? Is your class like uh, done any kind of nifty tricks on Zoom? Like, have you gone TikTok viral? Are you doing any dances? How's that? How's that? Playing I haven't out? done a lot of. I haven't done a lot of. Um, a lot of uh, you know whatever that that little sort of cross cross the shoulder snapping dance that everyone does. <laughs> I have not broken that out. I have not broken out the Pete Buttigieg high hopes dance on my in my Zoom class yet. Um, you must be terribly you know, to be unpopular. Honest, to be honest, I know it's a disaster for for you know most parents and children actually. Um, but uh, for a certain kind of college seminar, it's you know it's manageable to sit around and talk about a book. Um, you know you you can do that on Zoom. So I've been another another way that I'm stupidly lucky in this in all this. Yeah, that's right. So you are the author of. Uh... Uh, a couple of books now. I want to talk about the, the, the book at some point that you've got coming out uh, anytime now. But the piece we're going to be talking about uh, really uh, to, to kick things off here is The Politics of a Second Gilded Age. It's an essay that came out in Jacobin Magazine last week. And that's um, exactly what it sounds like. Uh, you, your thesis is that we are either entering or clearly in something like a second Gilded Age. We're going to define what that means exactly and what the first Gilded Age was as we go on. And uh, there's some interesting parallels here about how class politics and class rage are being extinguished, as you write, by identity-based partisanship. And this is an interesting thesis to me, obviously, being the anti-essentialism guy here who's eaten a lot of shit for it and now sort of happy to find it popularized by people far more talented than me. Uh, but, you know, it's, it's more interesting as a, as a history nerd myself, and I think my, my, my audience is going to love it as well. When you think about identity-based partisanship, it's something that you think about emerging, like, say, post-68, you know? Not to denigrate the civil rights movement, of course, it had a serious class element, a serious like racial injustice element. But you think about kind of more uh, cynical identity-based partisanship emerging long after that in the, in the 80s, in the 90s, sort of postmodern, there is no alternative landscape where class politics and class rage has been permanently extinguished. And now we're just sort of up, up and away into this global future, this cosmopolitan global future. But you, you find serious, you know, case of, identity-based partisanship emerging in the first Gilded Age, going back to, say, 18... What are the dates on the first Gilded Age? Let's start there. Let's, let's foreground the argument. I mean, for the, for the, for the point of... For the purpose of the article or the, this broad and really, you know, more suggestive than, than sort of substantive comparison, uh, I'm thinking, you know, my, my, my crude guide at the Gilded Age is basically the end of Reconstruction. 1877 is the conventional date. Say 1882... Um, actually, you know, in, in a very broad sense through to, you know, what sometimes is called as the, you know, referred to as the progressive era, the first couple of decades of the 20th century, that, that big chunk. There's a new book by a guy, John Grinspan, who is not really a left winger, but, um, but frames this entire period. He's done an interesting study of the electoral politics of this era and um, the kind of the culture of electoral politics. 
and um, you know, which 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 influenced me. And he he calls it the age of acrimony mm-hmm. um, in terms of in his in his assessment of the sort of uh, the electoral culture of the period from roughly the end of Reconstruction to um, the the First World War. So we're talking about post-Reconstruction into the progressive area uh, era, as my uh, high school history teacher used to say. Teddy Roosevelt, more progressive. Uh, that that progressive era, not the Liz Warren progressive era. In a uh, very in a very broad sense, yeah, yeah, absolutely. And and I mean, I, I mean, you know, sh- should I get into what what um, you know? What identity-based partisanship looked like in that period, or let's do it. I don't think we need to sort of spell it out what what it looks like today. I think our audience knows that all too well, but I think the parallels will be interesting. I, I, yeah, I mean, that, it's what interesting. Does that, what does that look like in the eighteen seventies, eighteen eighty? Yeah, Adam. I mean, I, I use that that word, and that word sets off a bunch of time bombs on on all sides of the debate. You know, identity. You know, you know, it, 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 in in our, it, it, you're right. I think that everyone, um, you know, sort of in the broad. You know, in the discourse today, uses it to mean a specific kind of politics. Um, you know, often on the left, although you know there have been a lot of people who pointed out that you know, you know, again on both sides of this debate, uh, that you know the right makes use of identity politics as well, et cetera, et cetera. You know, some who claim all politics is identity politics, et cetera, et cetera. Um, you know, that's a that's a strand of liberalism, and and then of course you know if you talk to um, if you read you know Piketty, he talks about you know his last you know doorstop tome. You know, he uses the word identitarianism over and over again, and he only is talking about basically, you know, sort of right ethno populism. Um, so, but in all those contexts, what's interesting is it's all very contemporary. But if you, you know, as a, you know, students of U.S. history, U.S. political history, are familiar with, you know, arguments about basically what some some political scientists and historians have called sort of the the third party system or the rise of the third electoral system after the Civil War. Um, you know, sometimes people date it with the rise of the Republicans before the Civil War, and you know the emergence of the basically what 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 still guides us, although the ideologies have changed quite a bit. The sort of Republican Democratic you know two party system, you know, replacing the Whigs and the Democrats in the antebellum period. And historians of that period have for a long time made arguments about you know have 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 argued and uh, about the nature of that system. But one of the prevailing and maybe and still still dominant interpretations of the politics of that period is this sort of ethnocultural, uh, what's called the ethnocultural hypothesis, the ethnocultural argument that says fundamentally what organized the, the current that organized these two parties for 50 years. Yes, yeah, some, some would say this predated the Civil War. I, I disagree on that front because I think the struggle against slavery was what brought the Republican Party together. And it's, a, it's not, it, and I don't consider that a, a kind of a, a, a cultural identity. Um, but but in the broad sense, across the late 19th century, what organized the combat between Republicans and Democrats was not was not class, was not uh, certainly not class. We can talk about that. Was not uh, even in a broader sense um, a kind of uh, you know re- really fundamental ideological differences about distribution of resources or about political economy. Although there were political economic questions up for debate passionately all the time, people argue about the tariff constantly. But what actually sort of embodied the coalitions, the two coalitions, and gave them, you know, their raison d'etre was culture and ethnic identity. And in effect, you know, Protestantism versus Catholicism, uh, you know, regional identity, Northern versus Southern, uh, urban versus rural, these kinds of, you know, you know, racial identity, obviously, to the extent that African-Americans, you know, participated in, in politics in the North in the late 19th century, they were overwhelmingly Republican. Um, 
the 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 immigrant versus native born these kinds of basically you know ascriptive identities and regional ge or geographic you know uh, positionality was what was what shaped the coalition so you could right. you could name a character in 1888 america and just by listing you know their attributes you would you could get within an 80% chance of knowing whether they are a republican or a democrat you know if you're a if you're a small far if you're a small farmer in alabama a uh, white farmer in alabama you're a democrat you know overwhelmingly if you're a irish immigrant living in cleveland you're a democrat if you're a, a small farmer in vermont you're a republican if you're a uh, if you're a you know a a, a railroad uh, a railroad manager in Chicago, you're a Republican. Yeah. Um, you know, if you're if you're a Protestant, uh, you know, you know, railroad employee, you know, art, you know, sort of um, worker in Wisconsin, you're probably a Republican. Anyway, um, these kind of identities are is what shaped the, those partisan collisions. And yes, there were arguments about economics, and it's a really complicated period. And my little flimsy article, you know, does not do justice to it in the way that you know a real proper historical treatment would. But that's the essential thing that I wanted to extract um, that I think does characterize our politics today increasingly. Um, there are ideological clashes, um, but in so many ways on the ground, in terms of the shape of the coalitions, they are not dominant. What's dominant um, structurally are these sort of partisan identity, you know, um, partisan identities. Right. Yeah. So I, I've interviewed Adam Hilton about uh, the history of the Democratic Party. He's a political scientist, and he comes at this a slightly different way than you, you uh, proper historians. But um, a lot of interesting insights about the realignment period and the development of the Democrats. And we talk, we spend, now, to be clear to the listener, I'm, I, I look, I don't know. I make this up as I go. I don't know if this is going to appear before this episode or after this episode. If, if you've heard it already, cool. If you, if you haven't yet, uh, hold on to your britches because it's a good one. Uh, but anyway, in any case, uh, Hilton and I talk a lot about the kind of uh, very strange, extraordinarily strange bedfellows that you find inside the Democratic Party in the 20th century. Um, and what, what you're talking about is, is a period of like almost perfect alignment along, of course, these sort of uh, identity based categories, which is something we have much more sort of developing today. Is there is there an argument? I mean, this is an incredibly irresponsible sort of like comparative like pseudo historical kind of uh, claim or to, to be investigated. He was like, can we say that uh, during per periods of realignment are when class politics come in and muck up the sort of more identity based alignments that you have. And so w if you look at history at a very iris, again, historically irresponsible sort of ebb and flow pendulum swing, kind of uh, a Polanyan sort of, lazy liberal Polanyan way you could see as a pendulum swinging back and forth between alignments and dealignments and class politics entering into the fray and so it seems like maybe your piece is a, is a cautionary tale about uh two paths that we could take going forward we could either see the class rage extinguished um through these uh walling off and and strengthening the identity identity based uh character of our two-party uh, system, or we could see class rage enter the fray and and maybe usher in a period of dealignment that we saw. Like, by the way, what happened after the progressives in 1920, right? <laughs> like, profound period of dealignment and, and class rage. Um, am I overextending your argument, or is there something to be said about this? 
No, I mean, I, another way to, I, I, I like that argument, you know, I'm not necessarily drawn to, you know, um, sort of systematic analyses of history where, <laughs> right. you know, every 10 years or every 100 year cycles or something like that. But I think it's a good book, well, though, you know, it sells a lot of books. Matt. Yeah, that's true. That's, that. yeah. that's true. It's a good it's, it's, it's good for the it's good. It's good for the crowds. But I think another way to put what you just said is class politics have generally not been the dominant way of organizing party systems in American history. I mean, and you can go back to, you know, the pre-Civil War. This concludes your free teaser of this week's B-Side. Head over to patreon.com slash deadpundits and subscribe today to hear the rest of this episode and to double your DPS pleasure each week.